Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditch Witch. Proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined, as always, by the host of Bass Edge Television, Mr. Aaron Martin. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning, Steve. I am excited to be here because you know what? Shortly after the tournament was over, we were able to get the Forest Wood Cup champion, Greg Hackney, who just recently pocketed $500,000 up on the Three Rivers. He's going to be on, and then a little bit later, Dr. Jay McNamara will be joining us, quite fitting, on the topic of mental toughness. Man, those are going to be great interviews. I'm looking forward to them. So let's get right to it. Get her like that one, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge with bass fishing. Oh, did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Well, Aaron, it sounds like I'm not the only one who's had trouble catching fish lately. Boy, I tell you what, I kind of got used to being able to go out and call the shots, but that's why fishing is such a humbling sport. I had a big dose of humble pie over the weekend, Steve. Well, listen, I was just out at Fork, and I was so convinced when I planned that trip that it was a an absolute no-brainer. You know, and I think that's sort of my history. If I get if I get too confident about a, a certain trip or something, it seems like uh, it doesn't go as well as I thought, and then... A lot of times when I say, hey, you know, let's do something this afternoon. Let's go jump on the leg, and they turn into some of the best days. So, you know, there's good and bad ones out there, and you take the good with the bad. Well, there is, and I think part of what I, I guess, attribute to what happened to me over the weekend is is kind of like that theory of trying to push a rope. Here, uh, we, we had the success <laughs> and kind of had them dialed in of what I thought they would be doing with that flutter spoon kind of swimming the jig through the trees. And I uh, certainly went back there over the weekend on, on Saturday, spent some time, had two barely keepers caught some little fish but what was happening steve is they were following the bait and they wouldn't commit well you know instead of actually figuring out and picking up something that they were probably wanting to chase or or doing something a little bit different i kept trying to force the issue and you know that's kind of the cardinal rule when it comes to what we talk about versatility you've thought about that a lot and i know you you feel that you're long and then probably agonizing what would you do different right now well i think you know certainly i would have went back and uh just tried some swim baits. I, I think that was the key. They were following the spoon. They would follow the jig. I mean, I literally watched three good fish between three and five pounds, which is a very, very decent fish on Table Rock, come up to the boat and just not commit. One time they grabbed the jig and they grabbed the trailers, but they just wouldn't grab it. And I think a lot of it came back to the fact it was cloudy, okay, so they could see pretty well. There wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of wind. Table Rock is clear, so they were getting a good bead on what that bait was, and it was enough to draw their attention to get them to, you know, actually pursue it, but they just wouldn't commit. So maybe going to like a small swim bait, burning a spinner bait, something a little bit faster, and getting into some of that type of thing. Well, you know, those are great comments. I know that after our trip to Fork last week, when when we just, uh, you know, it's Lake Fork, man. We went there to catch big fish. We stayed on the big baits and the big bites that had been successful in the week before. You know, my second guessing on that is we probably should have downsized and started working some of the perimeters of those to see if those fish had moved. But let's just face it, sometimes the fish are just not as active and you've got to work harder. And that discourages a lot of folks, but other folks seem more adaptable to that. Yeah, it's definitely so. And of course, I proved my uh, hard-headedness, I guess, because (laughs) 
because I, I, you know, I really could have went out and drop shot it and, and probably came up with, you know, so let's say a limit of 10 to 12 pounds. But, you know, I've, I've been so intrigued by targeting these bigger black bass, the largemouth, the northern strain largemouth that's holding out on some of these bluff ends like we've been talking with Brian Snowden and that about. And, you know, these are big fish. And then actually seeing the fish come up to the boat, you know, the fish didn't leave. It was just a matter of, of figuring out how to get them to bite. But, hey, you know what? It was a tremendous learning opportunity. And what we've always said is you're going to learn just as much, if not more, on the days that you don't catch them versus the days that you actually go out and slay them. Well, how much do you think that affects you when you go out and have a bad day after? I mean, let's face it. You've had a heck of a summer so far down there on Table Rock, and you go out and you have a bad day. How does that affect you personally? Do you think that you tend to uh, just say, well, just a bad day. We'll go right back after it. Do you change a lot of things? Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I think earlier in my maturity as an angler, it was bone crushing. I mean, absolutely. That's one of the things. It was a mental warfare that would just absolutely collapse. But now I see that as an opportunity. And it's almost like, you know, you hear golfers say, and of course I used to play golf, but you have a bad day on the golf course and it just makes you want to get right back out there and go play another 18. Well, that's that's how I am about fishing. You know, it's like I can't wait to go back out there mm-hmm. now and have the opportunity to take that information that I was given on the water and be able to apply that. Because if we went out and actually caught them every single day, I don't know, I kind of think that I might get a little bit bored and go on to something else. You know, it's the challenge. It's the changing of the elements. So that's what I take solace in is being able to use that information. So you sound like you're big into like the batter in a slum. Just hit your way out of the slum. Just keep casting and it's all going to come together eventually. Yes and no. When you say keep casting, I think you have to make sure that you're making adjustments. You know, the definition of insanity is, you know, the same behavior and expecting different results. So I I don't want to go down that road, but I want to make sure that I am making those adjustments and trying to work towards seeing what is going to work under those conditions. Well, what did you put in your log that day? I'm just curious. I know you're Mr. Log Rider. Did you put anything in there that we can repeat on the the podcast? We'll keep keep us from getting an explicit rating. But no, I put on my log, I had all the waypoints, and then I, I just placed on there, you know, two small keepers, several short fish. I described that they were chasing the bait, and then I just went back and said, great day for drop shotting to get a small limit, but as far as catching the fish that I was targeting, should have went to probably a swim bait, something a little bit faster, retrieve that they couldn't get such a good beat on, and uh, some of those type of things. And at some point next summer, you'll look back at that and perhaps gain from this trip. No question. I mean, I, I think those things just totally stand out, and when I go back and review the logbook, and also it's amazing of how, when you're actually experiencing, go through that physical emotion of seeing those big fish come up and just not commit. Uh, you, you don't forget too many days like that. Well, and I just think it kind of hammers home the point of fishing and what fishing is. Man, both of us, you've been hammering them all summer down there, and Fork has just produced for me in the summer year after year after year, and they just don't always bite. And it's humbling, but I think it's good for us. Absolutely good for us, and you know, I think that's going to be what we are going to hear concerning Greg Hackney. I mean, let's face it, the three rivers we've known for a long time that this is a tough place to fish, but in all honesty, this is what a lot of us have to target because we don't all live on the lakes of which produce those 25 to 30 pound sacks on a daily basis, as well as get to go fishing, you know, during the most opportune times. That's just so true. I mean, a three pound fish is a 
good, good fish in a pond where four pounds is the biggest. You know, I think that's important to your state of mind to, to understand what you're accomplishing within a body of water. Because like you said, I mean, as we go around, we try to pick lakes to where we can catch decent fish as we shoot our shows. And the pros, I mean, they show. Like at Pittsburgh then and Pittsburgh a few years ago when they fished the Bassmaster Classic there, I was uh, there as an observer. And those guys had a heck of a time hammering out fish. But a few guys stuck in tough and caught more than the other guys they want so just i think hang in there is a good lesson here yeah it is and, and you can't get discouraged and and i think that's what we're going to see even with uh, dr mcnamara's interview a little bit later so it's a good show and i'm excited and certainly i'm hanging in there and i'm going to go right back at it see if i can't get those fish figured out under similar conditions perhaps maybe this week maybe you can hop in and go with me hey man that sounds good we may have to go at night it turned hot here all of a sudden we were having a good mild year and maybe that's maybe the weather changes what's messing them up let's take a break now and talk to greg hackney about his win down there at pittsburgh and he sounds like he's going to have some good advice on how to catch fish in tough conditions for us we'll be right back here on the edge you've got the truck you've got the toys now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both it's the tow and stow receiver hitch by bmw you want options select the ball size adjust the height to level the trailer or stow it out of the way in just seconds it's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The Tow and Stow Receiver Hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On. Establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. We are back on the edge, and joining us today is an angler noted for flipping a jig in shallow water. That is, until he recently added $500,000 to his bank account by winning the 2009 Forest Wood Cup. Hailing from Gonzales, Louisiana, it's none other than Greg Hackney. Greg, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Well, first off, congratulations on your recent victory, Greg. You've really got to be overwhelmed with what's going on right now. I'm really overwhelmed. You know, it, it kind of came as a surprise to win after the kind of day I had yesterday. And honestly, it is it's not completely sunk in yet. I mean, I woke up this morning and it was like just a it's a surreal feeling. You don't, I mean, I'm like, am I dreaming or it's like I'm in limbo right now. Well, and, and I'm sure, you know, kind of looking back at your history, you know, the things that I respect and that really all of us out here that's pursuing kind of the green monster that swims beneath the water is that passion. Uh, your history is such to where you kind of stepped in, um, I guess, on the BFLs, right? Right. I started on the BFL level and just worked my way up. Perhaps you can describe for us three rivers in Pittsburgh and kind of what bass fishermen can expect when they visit this. Because obviously you've you know you've spent uh, the last several days there picking apart that body of water. You know the biggest thing it, it's like most rivers that have navigation or have commercial boat traffic. You know it's a lock and dam system. Um, works similar. The only difference up and down the Ohio River is actually in the Mon are actually, you know, regular locking dams where they raise and lower the gates and which controls the water flow. On the Allegheny River is where I spent most of my time. The dams on it, yes, they are locking, you know, it has a lock and a dam, but the dam is a spillway type. 
So they can't control the water. It's all fluctuated by rainfall, totally. Not because, you know, they open or close the dams. But other than that, it sets up like basically, you know, any river in the country. The fish there, even though, I, you know, I weighed in all smallmouth, they act just like spotted bass in a river system or largemouth. All river fish have a tendency, you know, to act the same. You know, much like the pros, I guess, Greg, recreational anglers don't often have the luxury of scheduling their fishing days during kind of the peak hours or at top fisheries. You knew that fishing on three rivers was likely going to be tough. How did you prepare leading into last week? Being able to be here during the 2005 Classic, and I pre-fished for the Classic and then fished the Classic, and it was uh, by far better than that, but it's still a tough fishery. Then I targeted largemouth, flipped, did, you know, I kind of fished against the grain, you know, was going to fish for a few bites a day. And this time I just totally had a different mindset. The heaviest line, I had one seven two. uh Pitching rod rigged up with 14-pound test was the heaviest equipment that I had in the boat. Everything else was 6- to 10-pound test line, little spinner baits, little buzz baits. I really knew this time to target 12-inch fish. You know, and that past experience from being here in the Classic really helped me. So I was drop shotting with 6-pound test, throwing a little buzz bait and a little spinner bait on 10-pound fluorocarbon. I mean, so I was prepared to fish for 5 pounds a day, mentally prepared for that. And you really have to, I mean, you know, I'd been, I had several years to think about it. And then when they, you know, I qualified for this tournament and I knew we were coming back, I, you know, I felt like I knew my mistakes from the first time and I revamped everything this time. And speaking of kind of that mental preparation, that has to come into play on any event, certainly an event to where there's this amount of money that's on the line. Yeah, without a doubt. I knew coming into it, I would have an advantage being here before and knowing how bad it was going to be. Because when I was here for the classic, you know, everybody said how it wasn't bad, just how challenging or how tough the fishing could be here. I was prepared mentally, and I knew a lot of those guys would have a mental breakdown, and they did. There's no doubt. I mean, a lot of them were beat up. You know, after struggling the first day with only a few fish, you know, I knew a lot of them wouldn't catch anything the second day of the tournament. But the positive about fishing a tournament on a body of water like this is that you can always come back. You don't have to catch anything. It doesn't take that much, you know, because it is a tough fishery. I think these make better tournament bodies of water than places where you go and it's a slugfest. Because in a slugfest, you know, it pretty well opens the ball game up for every competitor because they're fired up, you know, because the fishing's good. On a tough body of water, you take out half, at least half, if not three-quarters of the field before the event starts. Well, and that's a good point, Greg. And, and don't you think that, you know, transitioning that even into just a recreational angler's perspective, I mean, there's a lot of us that don't live on a Gunnersville or, you know, a Rayburn or something like that or a Falcon, that basically this urban fishing, you know, that's what we have access to and that's what we had better be prepared to kind of deal with and have enjoyment with. And, and you know, the thing about it is, it's funny, my best fish yesterday was probably two two, two and a quarter, biggest one. It's like catching an eight-pounder. It was as, as exciting to catch that fish as it would have been on a, another body of water catching an eight-pounder. So it's like the trophies in the eye of the beholder. You know, I caught a four-pounder here this week. That's like a fish of a lifetime here. And so by mentally preparing yourself for that, it's just as exciting to catch a 12-inch bass here as it would be to catch a three-pounder or four-pounder at Gunnersville. Well, I, I think going back to what you said earlier, putting it in perspective and knowing in advance and, and really that, that preparation, that mental preparation of setting yourself up to be a success rather than having a meltdown um, certainly goes a long way. Now, does the fact that it is a river system alter your approach as compared to a reservoir? And, you know, maybe perhaps explain how it does or doesn't do that. 
normally for me personally, what helps me, I grew up on the river system. So I kind of knew, you know, how fish would position. I spent, you know, the first, from the time I started bass fishing till I was probably 20, not fishing anywhere, but on the same river system. So I had a pretty good idea of how those fish set up. And for me personally, what I like about it, they relate to structure just like fishing a reservoir, but normally they're a lot shallower and the current you know, is what has a tendency to do that. The only drawback on a river, fish are bad to suspend on a river if the current quits. And there wasn't much current in practice, and there were a lot more fish suspended. But once we had the rainfall and uh, the river came up, but the main, not necessarily that it came up, but that the flow really speeded up, it started to position those fish, you know, behind what I call hard breaks, uh, big boulder, piece of concrete, barge tie-up. And so to me, it got, it become real textbook during the tournament. For me, it was basic river fishing, just real simple river fishing. So can you help us understand how you broke down kind of the massive amount of water that was available to you, you know, basically to, you know, across the three river system and and how you've kind of got that into something that was more manageable to create a, a foundation to build from? Well, you know, in practice, I never felt like I found a school of fish. I found a pattern and I could duplicate that pattern in four areas or four different pools. And so actually I fished the four different pools. I would not spend more than probably 10 minutes on a spot for an area because I knew I was fishing for more. Like yesterday, I caught two fish off a spot. That was the best I had done on any spot all week. I caught two keepers off the same spot, you know, sitting at one place, throwing at the same place. And so I knew I was going to catch one here and one there, but I was running two different deals. And I could duplicate those patterns over a 40-mile stretch. And actually, I had to utilize 40 miles of river every day to catch what I caught because of the way I was fishing. I was running and gunning. I like to, I have two speeds. I like to fish wide open or as slow as possible. And in this tournament, you know, mentally, I was prepared to fish wide open, you know, cover as much water as possible. And I'd pull up on a spot and I'd fish it with five different baits and then blow to the next one. Really two different deals. I also had, my, my backup deal was a mayfly hatch. There was a huge mayfly hatch on the Allegheny River this week. And that was a big key to catching keepers. I never caught the quality fish. My better bites were all bait fish oriented. But a lot of my keepers were feeding on mayflies, which were just, you know, 12-inch fish. Well, and, you know, that kind of leads me to my next question. When you spend four consecutive days kind of on any body of water, you know, certainly demands a strategy. But quite honestly, you know, four days on a river system that is typically stingy with her offerings almost begs for a miracle. Talk to me about the management of your time, spots, and emotion, and how all that came into play. Well, you know, the the deal was, I think most of the places I was fishing had little groups of fish. You know, there might be three or four keepers when you would pull up on a place, but it seemed like they were real aggressive. And so rather than slow down and try to milk out every one of them off a spot, I would try to fish for only one one, the aggressive fish, you know, and after I'd catch one, I would make two or three casts and then I would leave. And so I never felt like I completely wiped out a spot. I was able to, you know, to run kind of the same water, the same milk run. Some days I would run it backwards, you know, and I was going up three pools and starting and then fishing my way down. And uh, like one day I started on the bait fish fish, the fish I felt like were feeding on bait fish. The next day would be the mayfly hatch or vice versa because the deal was certain days when it was cloudy, I didn't have to be in a hurry to fish the mayfly hatch. It seemed like those fish would stay fairly active all day. On the sunny mornings, I would have to get on those fish quicker. They were easier to catch before the sun got high. The other deal was I was limited to amount of time I could spend in each pool because we had a guaranteed lock schedule. And if you got caught in that pool after that time, you were on your own and you, a barge might lock you out. 
So by far the third pool was the pool I had the most time in. I spent about three hours every day in it, and then I would spend about an hour and a half in the next one, and then about an hour and a half in the next one, and then the rest of my time in the Pittsburgh pool. So I feel like it would have helped everyone, but it would have helped me personally. Had there been no locks, and it would have been like a big creek arm, and you could have you know, spent the whole day, you could have maximized it a little better. But because of my time frame, I really had to kind of stay in a pretty fast motion all the time. Sure. And, you know, backing up to something that you said earlier on the Mayfly hatch and that, you know, you had to get there quickly. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that as far as the difference with the light penetration and why that was impacting, you know, kind of that bite? that mayfly hatch that you were targeting? Okay, this happens with other types of bait. Sometimes fish are so in tuned on one species of bait. I've seen schooling fish this way when there would be hundreds of them blowing up and you could not buy a bite because they were feeding on tiny bait. And normally this happens more so on small bait, whether it's mayfly, small crawfish, tiny shad, minnows, more so than big baits because, you know, most of our baits are designed for fish feeding on baits that are three inches and longer. Sure. So we have a pretty wide selection. and uh, But when they're on something as small as a mayfly, when it's dark, they're easier to trick. They can't see as well. They're more aggressive. Once it gets light, they're so in tune to looking for mayflies that when something else comes by, they don't even pay it any attention. And honestly, as a bass freshman, I didn't have a bait that actually looks like a mayfly. So uh, that was the reason for, you know, fishing them when it was dark. When it was cloudy, so I could get by with doing that because they couldn't see as well, get some wind. They were just aggressive. You know, and a lot of times I'd get a reaction strike. Most of my bites came around the mayflies when the bait instantly touched the water in the first six inches of the retrieve. I mean, they were reaction bites. They were so used to when one of those mayflies touched the surface getting it. And so the instant my bait would hit, they would get it. So were these areas that you were targeting for the mayflies, were they around trees or something to where the the mayflies were falling off of? Uh, Well, no, they're actually not falling off. What the deal is, and this is a funny situation, and I don't know what goes on under the water, but most of the time with the mayfly hatch, when they shed or molt their skin, you know, they're an insect that crawls around on the bottom with no wings and they're, you know, they're aquatic. But when they shed their skin or molt, they surface. And the instant they surface is when the fish get them, or it's when you see it. Now, they could be picking some of them off as they float to the top, but it seems like in most cases they wait till the mayfly comes to the surface. And then once they come to the surface, if they don't get eaten, they normally are in the trees right there. You know, big overhangs, that's, sure. that was the key. For me, it was a hard rock bottom. Now, they were hatching out on a mud bottom, but, you know, historically, smallmouth don't like mud. You know, they like hard bottom, like sand, a gravel, hard rock. So my best places were, you know, where I had good overhang and a hard bottom. It didn't have to be big rock. It just had to be a hard bottom, you know, whether it was gravel or sand. It just had to be a hard bottom. And the small, I think the deal was there were mayflies hatching out everywhere, but those smallmouth, historically, they're a hard bottom fish, you know, sand or rock. Then that leads me to my next question, which is what were your go-to baits for not only the mayfly hatch, but, you know, producing the results that you did? The big bag I caught on day two dominantly came off a quarter ounce uh, Strike King Premier Pro model spreader bait, a golden shatter. How I pick colors, that's one of my favorite colors, regardless if I'm fishing for largemouth or smallmouth. But I have a, uh, I have a lot of success all over the country in cloudy weather with that spinnerbait on smallmouth. I have about three choices for smallmouth. It's a chartreuse spinnerbait, a golden shiner, or a shad profile or a transparent type skirt. And during cloudy weather, that's just a kind of a go-to bait for me. Uh, but I'd actually been catching most of my fish on a spinnerbait on a 3 ounce Mini King spinnerbait. And I'd taken one of the spinners off. It actually comes with two, a Colorado and a small willow. 
and I'd taken the Colorado off because the other deal that was going on there, they have, um, I think I can nearly call them pinheads. At home, we call them ghost minnows, but it's almost like this small, transparent, you know, minnow. And actually what my better fish were feeding on. And so when, the, you know, the weather conditions weren't as good, whether it was no wind or high skies, I'd been sticking with the smaller spinnerbait. And actually a bait that really played a big part. It was a, it was huge in practice. And it kind of went away the first couple of days and then actually came back the last two. And I actually caught my two biggest fish on the final two days of the tournament was a scrounger. Eighth-ounce scrounger head with a uh, three-inch shad body on it, you know, which also resembled those small ghost mouths. Well, sure. And then let me ask you this. Were you throwing that on spinning tackle or, or how were you actually casting these smaller profile baits? I threw a spinning rod a lot. Like the fish, I caught a lot of fish wacky rigging a four-inch ocho and uh, also drop shotting it, and I was fishing that on a spinning rod. But I guess because I've never taught myself to do it, I cannot wind a bait on a spinning rod. And the reason for it, I can do it. I don't have any feel. It doesn't feel right to me. So I actually had just dropped to my smallest crankbait rods, and I threw all that stuff on a 6.6 uh, six Energy cranking rod, quantum cranking rod, uh, which is, it looks big. You know, it's a glass graphite blank composite. You know, it's a soft rod, and all these baits had small hooks and, yeah, I caught some big fish, but I was targeting small fish. And so to keep from taking the bait away from them, I really liked the way that rod loaded. And I was used to using it. You know, and I really just dropped my line test. I th- actually threw the spinner baits and a small 8-ounce buzz bait on 12-pound fluorocarbon, Cajun fluorocarbon. And the, uh, the scrounger I was throwing on 10-pound fluorocarbon. And the little tiny spinner bait I was throwing on 10-pound. You know, so I basically used my normal tackle and just downsized everything. I will say this, I would have to revamp all my tackle if I fished here all the time. Uh, some of my rods had a tendency to be overkill throwing that stuff. Well, and it kind of goes back to what you described before. It's familiarity and also what you have confidence in. And as we know, you know, confidence certainly plays a big factor when it comes to fishing. You know, Greg, in closing here, I do want to go over with you. You know, changing conditions are really a, a given when it comes to uh, whether it be competitive fishing or even recreationally, highlight some of the conditions that you experienced, you know, and how you had to adjust as, as the week progressed. You know, in practice, we had low water with, I would say, an average amount of current, nothing special. In visibility, at sometimes of six foot. And some of those, you know, some parts of the river, you could see six foot deep. The first day of the tournament, the water was maybe came up six inches, but it cut the visibility down at the most to like two foot. Like the best area I went to was only like two foot of visibility. The second day of the tournament, I actually went way up. The river had come up two foot, but it was still fairly clean. It had three to four foot of visibility in it. The third day, it was high and dirty, and the visibility was back down to about a foot and a half. And yesterday, the visibility was about the same, about a foot and a half, and the river was down, or not necessarily down, but the current had slowed down considerably yesterday. It went from being bright, sunny, and no wind to storms and wind, and then partly cloudy. And then yesterday was, I mean, we had some torrential rainfall yesterday where, you know, it probably rained an inch an hour. Good grief. Well, it certainly sounds like you had your hands full with changing conditions and also just the mental space. But, you know, unfortunately, we are out of time. Once again, congratulations for your victory. And who knows? You know, maybe we can conduct a similar interview after the Bassmasters Classic. Uh, We hope so. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being part of The Edge, Greg. Power. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made. Not to mention the best plow. Dumper. Tiller. Backhoe. Stump Grinder, 
and tool carrier ever made. The Zon. The revolution is here. Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Order your DVD by calling 888-390-8780 or online at BassEdge.com. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Clark Ream, and you're listening to The Edge. Man, Aaron, I loved hearing about those mayflies. As you know, as a fly fisherman, I'm all about the bugs, and of course, mayflies are a big trout food, but they're also a heck of a bass food, as Greg pointed out. I couldn't help but think of when I was doing that interview with Greg, thinking about you sitting there just chomping at the bits of having that, <laughs> that fly rod in hand, and then also, you know, thinking back to several weeks ago when we had Bob Lusk on here talking about the importance of matching the hatch and paying attention to the bugs that the brim feed on. But in this case, seems like maybe the bass were eating uh, directly on the mayflies given their size. Well, they do, and that's hard for us to realize. And, and, you know, I grew up on a lake called Lake Palestine in Texas, and we had enormous mayfly hatches in the evening. But we were typically looking for the brim that were feeding on those adult mayflies as they hatched and, and came to the surface. And the bass were feeding on the brim, and we were the hatch we were matching was the brim themselves. But bass do eat mayflies, especially uh, juvenile bass in the southern climates. But there's also some very big mayflies out there that provide an enormous amount of protein. We have a hexagena hatch here in the south. They're very large yellow mayflies that uh, you've probably seen down there around Table Rock. But they provide a lot of protein. You just think a lot of these 10 and 12 pound rainbow trout that you see, they got there eating bugs. So... Uh, there's a lot of food value there. Well, and two things there, Steve. One is, you know, the, the size of bass that live in three rivers, you know, kind of the average is like we heard Greg talk about. He went there fishing for 12-inch fish, and, and that's because that's what is average, you know, to catch a keeper. That's what you have to mm-hmm. go after. So perhaps, you know, size does have something to do with that. But then the fact that he's throwing, you know, that I, I think what he said was a quarter-ounce spinnerbait combination that he took the Colorado blade off and had it a single willow, you know, that gives you some perspective of the size of bait fish because there were two different groups of fish. There was one group that he was targeting that was feeding on bait fish. The other group was targeting on those mayflies. And uh, I guess I just never realized that mayflies live underwater and then they come to the surface. Yeah, you know, they of course, our, our fly fishermen know that they start out as nymphs. And once you fly fished, a lot of times you realize that this, this mayfly that you see on top of the surface lives a very short time. A matter of hours or days, uh, there's thousands of mayflies and they have different life cycles. But they're nymphs for a very long time before. And you know doggone well that those fish are down in those rocks eating those nymphs too. Well, and and I thought that was such a critical realization and point that, that he made. You know, he was targeting those harder surfaces and realizing that those mayflies were coming out of that. And certainly his comment that all of the fish, the spotted bass, the largemouth, and certainly the smallmouth, they were the typical river fish that were setting up and positioning based upon that current. So I thought a very, very good interview with Greg Hackney. Well, it was a great interview, and it just shows the adaptability that we talked about earlier. You know, he met up with some very tough conditions, 
he figured them out, and he won where, as he said, a huge percentage of the guys had taken themselves emotionally out of that tournament. Well, and that's what's exciting is because our next interview that's coming up is going to be exactly that. Taking that comment of taking yourself emotionally out of the day of fishing. Jay's actually going to tie that into those of us whom, um, you know, perhaps don't compete on a tournament. But before we do, I wanted to get your, going back to something that you said earlier, are uh, you and Jeff perhaps going to be down at the Big Bass Tour September 25th and and 26th there on Lake Louisville? Well, I saw that, you know, my brother Jeff lives right there on Louisville, and he's quite the angler, and uh, we may go down there and toy around with that now, but I'm going to need the Bass Edge boat, so i got to make sure you're not using it, which you always seem to be. Well, (laughs) uh, we, we can arrange that for you to get the boat but no i mean you've got two chances steve uh certainly get down there and they've got the stringer tournament i think on the first day and then the big bass which is the hourly way in kind of a neat deal all kinds of prizes that's going to be given away so would encourage you and actually our listeners check it out go to their website bigbasstour.com and uh, get involved in that well that sounds like a lot of fun lewisville brings back a lot of memories for me i grew up in the dallas area and to be honest uh most of my days on lewisville back in those teen days where i was skiing trying to impress some young lady I had in the boat <laughs> and we didn't fish over there so much but that sounds fun we I think we may give that a shot you know last time I was down there was for the college uh, championship the boat US angler deal and certainly looked like there was plenty of opportunity to try and uh, get out and do a little skiing oh, so, so maybe yeah. you can live a little nostalgically Steve and, <laughs> and get out on the tube yeah we'll see if they got a tugboat ready to go. <laughs> but uh, anyway them kid, the kids caught them down there though didn't they oh yeah absolutely they figured them yeah. out and uh, certainly a good lake and kind of a neat place. Yeah, I need to give me a college kid to get me tuned in and down there. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, anyway, we need to pull away for a second. Got a great interview with our resident shrink, Dr. Jay McNamara. Maybe he can help us sort out all these problems we've been having. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. This is Mark Zona, and you're listening to The Edge. We are back on The Edge, and given the words spoken about mental toughness and confidence during our previous interview with Greg Hackney, I couldn't think of a more fitting guest to further the discussion than Dr. Fish himself, Dr. Jay McNamara. Jay, thanks for joining us. Hey, Aaron. It's good to be back on the show. Well, it's great to have you, and we have so many things to discuss with so little time, so let's get started by helping us take the abstract concepts of this mental-slash-psychology of fishing and apply it to those of us that perhaps don't care to participate in a formal tournament and, you know, maybe just like to fish from the side of the bank or a float tube or a kayak. How is this applicable, Jay? Well, you know, all of us that go fishing want to catch fish, and when we leave the boat dock or when we fish from the bank, we're pretty excited to start with. Everybody's excited about going fishing. If we meet with a quick success, it's easy to keep that excitement level up, but if we don't meet with quick success it's easy to get discouraged. And so one of the key elements, and Greg mentioned this in his interview, is managing expectations. And really, you know, most of us who fish on a day-to-day basis or once a week or something like that face the same kind of circumstances that Greg faced in terms of 
Uh, we don't have a lot of time. We're not terribly familiar with the area, and we're probably going to catch little fish. Uh, knowing that on the front end can make a day where you catch three or four or 12 or 14 inch fish a great day, as Greg described. And that's a good point because Greg made a comment that, I'll be honest with you, it still has my jaw hanging a little bit low in amazement. Uh, And I'm going to be paraphrasing here, but he stated that 50 to 75% of the competition removed themselves mentally from the competition given the difficulty of catching fish, not only just keeper-sized fish, but catching fish and the relevant size. Well, you know, Aaron, I've fished at tournaments, as you know, as a co-angler, uh, professional tournaments, and uh, historically, if you fish out of the back of the boat and you catch three fish in an eight-hour day and you do that for three days, you're going to be in the money. But most of the co-anglers will do the same thing that Greg is saying that some of the pros did in the FLW Championship, and that is um, they can't live with only getting three bites during the day uh, or only catching three or four small fish. If you caught four small fish uh, for three days at the FLW Championship, you would have won a check. But the point of this being, uh, you do have to have realistic expectations for the amount of time you have, the amount of knowledge you have, and the size of the fish that you're likely to catch. Well, and, you know, perhaps my next statement, I would like your opinion on this. Maybe it's not a fair conclusion to draw here, but, you know, there was a million dollars, literally, on the line for first place at that tournament. Just think of, of how likely we are to sabotage ourselves when we arrive maybe at the boat ramp or as the day progresses and we're not getting the results that we desire or maybe even before we leave, you know, because we see the forecast or we hear some sort of report or from the local tackle shop or on the Internet that the fishing is off. And maybe it's just a recreational trip. Right. Well, you know, Aaron, I hear that all the time from recreational anglers. We're, <laughs> as fishermen, we're great at coming up with excuses for why we're not catching fish, right? But um, when I'm out on the lake and I go by another boat, say, how you doing? And I constantly hear comments like, oh, there's too many water skiers or the sun's too bright or, you know, it's August now and the fish don't bite in August. And if that's your attitude, it's so easy to miss the few bites you do get. We were just talking about that the other day, a friend of mine, and he's saying, you know, I don't think that I get any more bites now than I did a couple of years ago, but I think I notice more of the bites now and I catch more of them because I've learned to pay closer attention while I fish. And whether you're a tournament angler or a recreational angler, if you're paying closer attention, you're going to catch more fish. Well, no question. And, you know, it still comes down to being able to catch that little green monster. And, you know, that's what I thought that that Greg pointed out so well is that he went there fishing for 12-inch fish. And he was ecstatic when he caught a two-pounder. And going back to something that you said earlier in the conversation, you know, that that's the type of situation that most of us find ourselves in. We don't we don't live on the Falcon. We don't live on the Rayburn and those type of lakes. But that is so key to make sure that you have it framed and you have your perspective set correctly. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and failure from day one. Well, not only are you setting up yourself for disappointment and failure, but, but the key element in that is the failure. Because if you feel mentally discouraged, if you feel mentally frustrated, if you don't think you're going to make the shot, or you don't think you're going to catch any fish, it diminishes your attention and concentration, and it turns out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, and I guess then, it kind of to bring this full circle, and of course I, I know you talk about this in the book, but what can we do to make sure that when we are on the water, you know, this mental toughness that obviously that you speak a lot about, Greg just pointed out in the last interview, how do we develop that? 
Well, you know, I think a good way for the, a regular guy to think about mental toughness really just has to do with consistent attention and concentration to the task at hand. You know, if you just want to sit in the boat and throw a bobble over the side and maybe you get a bite or maybe you don't, that's one thing. But if you're serious about fishing, and I think most of the people that listen to our podcast are serious, then you want to do everything you can to focus on exactly what you're doing, whether it's dragging a Carolina rig or fishing a crankbait or playing with a drop shot, um, that you focus on each individual cast and you tell yourself that this could be the cast that I catch the fish on. Now, if you fish for three or four hours, you'll make several hundred casts that won't be the one that you catch the fish on. But if that's your expectation, then you're more likely to get that bite when you do get it. And, you know, pros for years have talked about that. Guides talk about that. If you pay close attention, and that's an easy thing to develop, it's hard to sustain, but it's easy to develop. Pay close attention, you'll catch more fish. That's really what mental toughness is. Mental toughness is paying close attention more than the guy next to you. That's a great point because, ironically, we just had Brian Snowden on here last week, and and one of the topics that came out of that was the importance of practicing. Not practicing for a tournament, but actually going out and practicing, honing your skills with a particular technique or bait. And mental toughness could be lumped right in there with that. Well, any of the guys that bass fish know that flipping accuracy is really important. And if you can set your bait quietly into the water next to your target, you're going to have a better chance of getting bit than if you throw your bait in with a big splash in shallow water. And you can practice that in the backyard, in the front yard, with a tin pie plate or a a plastic cup any time of the year. I know several people here in Minnesota that uh, have targets set up out in the backyard off their deck in the winter and they practice it in the snow. Yeah, so. <laughs> you, you you drill a hole in the ice and practice pitching in that hole in the ice, right, Jay? <laughs> you can cut a hole in the snow in the backyard and in, in the snowbank and practice pitching a jig in there in the winter, right? Well, I mean, certainly it's no secret that this is a big topic, a very important topic, kind of at the forefront, not only of the anglers, but certainly here at Bass Edge. Unfortunately, Jay, we have reached the end, but uh, as always, you know, you've raised the bar once again. Before we get out of here, we've got to let uh, those listeners know how they can find out more information about some of the great things that you have going on, in particular your book. People can always go to the Bass Edge website, BassEdge.com. Under Shop Bass Edge, you'll find Steve Brigman's great new book and also the uh, Psychology of Exceptional Fishing. So they're both there. Well, and certainly can uh, also send you an email under the Ask the Pro segment. Uh, I know you've been kind of lighting up the airwaves with those lately. Jay, we do have to get out of here. Thanks so much and uh, look forward to doing it again. Okay, Aaron. Thanks very much. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. Steve, before we shut this down, why don't you tell us who this week's prize winner is? Well, I'd love to, and this week's winner is Lauren from Garland, Texas, my old stomping grounds, and Lauren wins a copy of my book. Somebody's got to do it. Well, congratulations, Lauren. I appreciate you tuning in, and I know you will enjoy Steve's book. That is it for today, but be sure to look for us on Bass Edge Television, seen each and every day on the World Fishing Network, and also on Wild TV in Canada. Also, log on to BassEdge.com for the latest tips from 
the pros and a chance to win great prizes. Until next time, I am Aaron Martin. And for Steve Brigman and the rest of the Bass Edge crew, we look forward to seeing you next week right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edge's The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Mega Wear Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.